All right, if you did your family pictures, they're over there. The Mother's Day pictures are on the counter. If you did them, and you'll see how beautiful they are. They turned out really beautiful, uh, like the expression of what you truly are. So we want to welcome our live stream audience. We want to uh, encourage you to share the stream. And we got an action-packed day for you. Got some uh, teaching, got some prayer, and we got some communion. Action church, right? Action. Come on, help me out. Action. All right. So we're doing John chapter 10. We're going to read a few passages from this, and then we're going to uh, break it down for you. And so starting in John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life. Say that with me. Jesus has come to give me life and life to the full. Is that crazy? And he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. The hired hand is not, is not the shepherd. It does not own the sheep. So when the wolf comes, that shepherd abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf will attack the flock because the shepherd isn't there. This man runs away because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. These sheep know me. These sheep belong to me just as I am known of the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have others that are not of this sheepfold and I must bring them there too. They will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock with one shepherd. The reason the Father loves me is that I will give my life for my sheep. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own will. And I have the authority to lay down my life. And I have the authority to take my life back up again. This is the command given to me by my Father. And then those who heard him said these things. They said, this guy's crazy. Who talks like this? This guy's insane. The other said, no, he's got a demon, man. He's just a babbler. Why are we listening to him? And then another said, can a demon, someone with a demon, open the eyes of the blind? And so here you have Jesus, the last three chapters, and Jesus is having this discussion, this confrontation with these Jewish leaders and all of the people that were following him, and they were listening to the things that he was saying. And these people were supposed to understand who the Messiah was. Can you imagine your whole life you've prepared for something? You've prepared, you're an Olympian and you've prepared for the 40-yard dash. And then it comes time for the 40-yard dash and you don't even recognize the race that you're supposed to be in. They had spent their whole lives preparing for the fullness of the promise. To the Jew, the fullness of the promise was the Messiah. The Messiah was the, the one who would bring forth all things, that would enable and empower all things. And so here you have the promise of God standing right in front of a people who had been trained their whole life to recognize, and they can't see it. They can't recognize the promise when it comes. Huh? And why couldn't they recognize the promise when it comes? Because generations of natural mindedness had led to the enslavement of their enemies. God had called them not to live by natural thinking. God had called them to not live by natural ways. They were to commune in the life and their wisdom and all of their actions were to flow from his presence. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, the Old Testament is a mirror and a model for us. We learn from the Old Testament. Jesus is concealed in the Old Testament. He is revealed in the New. 
right? But these are the things that point to him. And there's a lot of stuff I could jump off on, but I'm not going to. But I do want to show you this. When Israel came out of Egypt, they came out by blood and water, the blood of the lamb and the passing of the water of the Red Seas. When we're born again, we're born again by blood and water, right? By the blood of Jesus. Baptism doesn't save us, but it separates us. That's how Israel came out. They, were, they came out of Egypt. The bondage was released through the blood of the lamb, and the separation from their former life came through the passing of the water. That's the mirror for us of what, when we get born again, it's the blood of Jesus that separates us from our, from, from our, uh, our generations, and then we pass through the waters, which again separates us from our former life. So baptism doesn't save you, but the blood of Jesus is what saves you. But nonetheless, Israel came out by blood and water it was a mirror and when God brought them out of Egypt and he brought them and it, the first place he takes them is he takes them to a mountain and when he takes them to the mountain his goal was twofold to teach them and expose them to his presence that all of his people would learn and know and recognize the presence of God because they're all his people. They're his sons and daughters. They're his family. And God wants all of them to know him. And so he brings all of the people to the mountain, and he tells them to draw near. There was a boundary, of course, but they, were, they could draw near, that they would experience and know God's presence. The second thing he wanted them to know was his power. And when God brought his people to the mountain and he exposed them to his presence and exposed them to his power, the people retreated. They pulled back. They stepped away from his power. And so what ended up happening is when the people wouldn't follow his power and they didn't really, weren't really down with his presence, then they ended up living a life of natural mindedness. And so here you have Israel, generation after generation after generation after generation of natural mindedness, and they can't recognize the promise, they can't recognize the prophetic, and they can't recognize the fullness that's standing right under them. And what natural mindedness ultimately does, and you see it here completely, the pattern, is that natural mindedness leads to the enslavement of their enemies. And see here, you not only have these people who have lived their lives naturally, natural mindedness, God's people living naturally. This is how we do it today. We're the same way. It's got to make sense. Got to understand it. It's got to be rational. You know, we live by a natural mindedness. We think we, we try to work out our faith and live our faith and practice our faith and partner with our faith through a natural way of thinking. We're not called to that. We're called to a different lifestyle. We're called to live in the world, not of it. We're called to live from a communal relationship with the Holy Spirit in this world. And you say, I have no idea what that means exactly because you're immersed into something that's different. It's like it, it, one of the easiest ways is like if you were to shift atmospheres and you were to be in the space, you would have to acclimate to space in order to learn to operate. People, you know, we're in Florida, we're in Miami, so people that dive and go underwater, when you dive and you go underwater, one of the things you have to do is you have to acclimate to the atmosphere that you're in. You know, if you're diving deeper, you got to go slower. You, gotta, you know, you have to acclimate to the atmosphere that you're in. And when you acclimate to the atmosphere, you know, we used to go snorkeling, we went snorkeling down in... Uh, I remember this one. Uh, so when I my wife was pregnant, I think she was pregnant with my daughter. This is one of the times we went snorkeling. We, we went down several times. My wife was pregnant, I think, with uh, Mariah. And so I was on the boat, and I get really seasick on the boat. And, man, I was seasick on that boat, and it was bad. And so my wife's looking at me, and she's like, I just think this is great. And I'm like, why? Because she's had morning sickness for four months, you know. So she's like... <laughs> Now you understand how I feel for the last four mornings and so for the last four months. And so, but when we went underwater, you know, everybody just starts swimming and crashing into the water. And I just submersed myself 
like went under the water and I sat still as I held my breath. And it's amazing when I just immersed myself in that environment, I started to notice things. I started to see things that were there that other people couldn't see because they were flailing all around. You know, the same thing with the spirit. We have to learn that atmosphere. We have to learn that way. There's a way of the spirit, and it's not natural. It's supernatural. There's a way of his presence, understand? And the way this, this, this kingdom, this faith cannot work naturally. It just doesn't work. Jesus is looking for, the Father where it looks for worshipers where? Spirit and truth. These are, the, these are the worshipers the Father seeks. He's not looking for naturally minded people. He's looking for people, adults in the room, that understand the Spirit, that understand His voice, that understand the commune with His presence, to listen to His presence, to move forward in His presence. You know, this generation and probably the last couple of generations, we've done a pretty good job of creating this experiential presence where we can feel his presence in worship. That's an understanding of his presence. But we need to understand his voice and his power. And this is what God is calling us to in the mirror to these people. Or you won't be able to recognize what God has for you, and it's right in front of you. God had his presence and his power and his purpose and everything that they had wanted and sought for for generations standing in front of them, but they couldn't recognize it and they couldn't embrace it because they were naturally minded. This doesn't make sense. What is it that he's talking about? This is crazy. This guy's got a demon. That's not of God. Yeah, sound familiar? That's what ends up happening. And that natural mindedness caused them to make natural choices. And they kept making natural choices. And as they made natural choices, they ended up finding themselves in partnership with the world. They ended up finding themselves in covenant with, in agreements with the world. And that led to enslavements. That led to defeat. And that led to enslavement. How many knows what Israel was supposed to do when they came into the promised land? Right? They were supposed to take cities. Right? You guys know the story? They come out of the promised land and they're supposed to take cities. But there was a process for them to take cities. They were supposed to hear the Lord, listen to what he said, and follow that plan. That's what they're supposed to do. And that makes perfect sense. Right? They go up to Jericho. They're going to go up to Jericho. Big double-walled city. And God's like, hey, I got a plan here, guys. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to march around the city one day, every day, for seven days. And then on the seventh day, can you imagine being Joshua telling the people this is the plan? This is the plan, guys. They'd be like, dude, you're crazy. And then on the seventh day, ready? On the seventh day, we're not going to march around one time. We're going to march around seven times. And as we get around on the seventh time, we're going to blow the shofar. And everybody's going to shout. Wait for it. And when we shout, the walls will come down, and God's going to give us a victory. You could, you'd probably hear crickets. And people would be looking at each other like, man, we're going to die. We're going to die. We are not going to make it. We're going to die. But the whole goal was that they would hear the Lord and do what the Lord would tell them. And if they did that, they would have victory. Second city, so they do that, right? Jericho. Everything in Jericho belonged to the Lord. There's the model of first fruits. The first belongs to me. The first city, they were to take nothing. The spoils all belonged to the Lord. The second city, they could take whatever they wanted. But the first city belonged to the Lord. First fruits, all through the Bible. Second city, the city of Ai. How many knows what happened there? Joshua went and spied it out. He looked at it, and he's like, we got this. We got this. He didn't consult the Lord. They went in their own strength, and they were defeated by a superior, an inferior enemy defeated them. Inferior. And then Joshua was crying, oh, God. One of my favorite stories. 
Anybody ever feel like that? You get defeated, you're just like, <laughs> why'd you forsake me, Jesus? We were serving you, trying to do so much good. You know what he tells Joshua? Stand up. Stand up. There's again the inheritance of the believer. Jesus, say with me, Jesus doesn't recognize me as a victim because in his eyes, I am not a victim. I am a victor. So when he presents himself to the Lord as a victim, he's like, stand up, Joshua. Does the same thing to Job. Sit yourself up like a man. Stop lamenting, crying, and boo-hooing. Stand up. You're a son or a daughter. Arise. I don't understand you as this person. He doesn't recognize you as a victim. He only recognizes. So when we stand before our Father and we pray, we come from the context of sons and daughters, heirs of his world and, and the one to come. When you do that, your prayer life will change, I can assure you. The results of your prayer will change. Would you, could you, should you? Oh, poor Jesus. Oh, help me, God. He's on, the, he's on his floor. He's on the ground crying. Victim. Oh, God, you know, you've forsaken us. You brought us out here to die. And Jesus is like, did I say that? He says, stand up. And then he corrects Joshua and he said, do what I told you to do. What he didn't do was commune with the Lord. He went out in his own strength. And how many knows when you go in your own strength, you're susceptible to failure? Oh, sure, you might win sometimes, but you're going to lose. The thing is, is when you do it with the Lord, the Lord will always back it up. So even when you lose, you win because God will back that up because he doesn't lose. He'll be like, what? That didn't work? Do it again. He'll reinforce it and he'll make it work because he told you to do it. He backs up what he says. When you do it and you lose it, it's like letting go. Everything just blows off in the wind and it doesn't come back. When you build something in partnership with Jesus, even when you lose it, it comes back. Yeah. If the marriage is rooted in Christ and both people are willing to honor the Lord and serve the Lord, I don't care what the meltdown is. If they will listen to what Jesus has, he'll restore it. He will restore it because God's favor is on that relationship. That's the way the game is played. But when you do it the way that you, are, you want to do it and you kind of make it up as you go along, you know, and you don't, you know, God's not in your relationship or in your marriage or anything like that and it fails the odds of it coming back are less than zero. And, oh, it's possible. This is why everything in our lives is to be rooted and founded in the Lord. You build a business in your own strength, hallelujah. You know, but the tide rises and the tide falls, man. I've been in business a long time. You're riding high and all of a sudden, you, as quick as you win it, as quick as you lose it. It goes that quick. And when you build it in your own strength and you lose it, there is no fallback. But if God, if you do it with the Lord and he's involved, you will not lose it. He'll either give it back to you or he'll give you a pivot. But you will win. This is the destiny, the inheritance that we have as Christians. And God wants us in communion. If we're not in communion, this is what happens. They become enslaved and they can't recognize the promise, the gift that's standing right in front of them. Like the woman at the well. If you knew who I was, you would ask. If you knew the gift of God that's sitting in front of you, you would ask. The gift of God is standing in front of these people, and they don't know him at all. They can't even recognize him for, for who he is. This is what happens. And then the enslavement happens because you start making choices that are contrary to his kingdom. And when you make choices that are contrary to his kingdom, like Joshua, you get defeated. And you make those choices long enough, and you become enslaved. It's what happens. 
This is not God's purpose. This is not God's plan. This is not what he wants. Because what you do is you give legal right to the devil. This kingdom, this world, this spirit, everything in creation is formed and framed by law. It's amazing for us, and as Christians, we understand natural law, you know, the rising of the sun, the setting of the sun. We understand the rain cycle. We understand sowing and reaping. We understand that kind of concept, the law of nature. We understand those things. We understand natural law. We understand the laws of physics. You know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We understand these kind of concepts. We understand civil law, right? We have that concept drilled into our head. Whether those laws are right or whether those laws are wrong, they do exist. But what we don't understand is spiritual law. And therefore, because we don't understand spiritual law, we're already lost. We're already at a deficit. Because I can assure you, the devil understands spiritual law. And you say, well, God's for me. The Lord has delivered me. Everybody say it with me. Yes, he has. So let's do this. If you have an apartment building and you've had a squatter in your apartment building, this is, this is law. Florida is actually more gracious than any other state to the owner anyway. But you have a squatter that's illegal. He cannot be there. You don't have the legal authority to evict that person. You have to go to the judge. And when you go to the judge and you do the process, whatever it is, the judge will rule. He will rule, and he or she will rule in your favor, and you will get what's called a writ of possession. Once you have that writ of possession, you cannot run up to the tenant and say, you got to get out because I have the writ of possession. Legally, the judge has ruled. So the court requires an enforcement arm to bring that ruling to pass. Do you understand that? If that's the sheriff, the sheriff has to show up with the writ of possession and enforce the ruling of the court. Your father has ruled. You're in Christ. You have freedom. You have deliverance. You have victory in every facet and sphere of your life. But if you do not understand that you are the enforcement arm of that ruling, you will remain as a slave. If you do not understand that you are the enforcement arm of everything that Jesus has done for you, you will remain as a slave. You will. The Bible's so clear on this. And we act like, oh, no, I already have the victory. I'm like, do you? Do you? In the spirit, you have the victory. On earth as it is in heaven, isn't that the game? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? The ruling in heaven is that I win. Then why am I not ruling? Why am I not winning? Is there something disconnected through the enforcement or there's a legal action that is being taken against you in the law of the spirit that you don't know about? And if you don't think the devil knows the law of the spirit and you can stick your head in the sand and say, this isn't the way it works, this isn't the way it works, look around. Look around. Is Israel a homeborn slave? Why are my people in bondage? Why do my people struggle? Why do my people not succeed? In other words, that's not my will. Why are you in bondage? Galatians, the heir, so long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is master of all. You're the heirs. You're the heirs. You're masters of everything. But you're no different than slaves, so long as you're immature and unknowing. The heir, so long as they are children, and uh, immature, undeveloped, unknowing, ignorant, or arrogant, so long as they remain in that state, they are no different than slaves, though the will of the Father is mastery of everything. You see the contrast? Well, I'm like, well, wait a second here. If I have mastery, then why am I a slave? And where do these questions come? What is the legal right against me? What is being imposed? The devil's name is the accuser's antitikos. 
It means accuser at law. He's accusing you before the Father, and Jesus is saying, he's forgiven, he's forgiven, he's forgiven. Dude, that's not the way it's working. He's accusing you at law. And the Lord stands waiting in partnership for you to know who and what you are in order to be the advocate with you on rights that you enforce. He's the advocate with you on the rights that you enforce. But the Antitokos will accuse you day in and day out. And you say, that's not true. Well, I can't help you. If that's your theology, you're going to stay as you are. I know this works. <laughs> when I learned this, the game changed. When I understood this, the game changed. The game changed. He accuses you, and you remain in these states. Based on what? Many things. There's a lot to it. Can you give him one? I'm like, all right, well, give me one. <laughs> you want me to give you one? All right, come back next month. I'll give you No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Whew, how deep am I going with this? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm asking him. I'm asking the Holy Spirit. I mean, he always wants to. He's like, go all the way in. I'm like, yeah, no, go all the way in. I mean, I don't have the time. Okay, so let's just take this one. Ready? We're in Miami, so this is a safe subject. We've all have. If you're in Miami and you don't, and you've never seen witchcraft, you, you know, hello, we're in we're in Miami. We have Santeria temples in Miami. We have, what are those things called where they sell all the chickens and stuff? Those uh, botanicas, right? There's more botanicas in Miami where they sell that stuff than there are churches. Figure that one out. More botanicas than there are churches. So there's generational witchcraft in your family, right? Let's just say generational witchcraft. We're going to do something. I don't know if this is too big. I hope I'm not going too big with this. I want to keep it as simple as I can. So you have generational witchcraft in your family. So now, the inheritance of generational witchcraft, unrenounced, that inheritance is destruction with a capital D. Destruction. I just heard a testimony of a guy, and he was raised by a woman who was a um, very successful guy, very successful man, and, um, and he was raised by a mother who was a card reader, tarot card reader. You know, and it's how she made money. So there's a lot of reasons, you know, it's like just empathy for these people. They don't do it willingly. They're ignorant. But this woman was a tarot card reader, and he was raised by this tarot card reader. And his, mo her, his mother used to read his cards all the time. And I'm looking at this guy, and I'm like, you know, and he's very successful. And as I'm watching this guy's testimony, you know what, immediately I'm thinking, I'm like, where's the destruction in his life? Well, he's had three failed marriages, and his son committed suicide. And I learned that at the end. I said, there's the destruction. That's the first thing I said when he said he was raised by a tarot card reader. And he's had his cards read and all this other stuff. You just gave a legal right of destruction into your family. The legal right of, of witchcraft is destruction. Destruction. And so you have, you have that. You say, well, I didn't do it. My ancestors did it. Well, you crossed the line. Witchcraft's a broad topic. You crossed the line. And now you cross the line into witchcraft. And that, that atmosphere goes from being around you to being bound unto you. And now the enemy is accusing you based upon not just an atmosphere, but on a binding right. He has a binding right. When you cross the line into that, that's what happens. Getting quiet in here. You're like, what? Listen, deliverance and inner healing was a massive practice of the early church. But the modern church from the 1600s on is no longer supernatural. We're natural. And we're natural-minded. And so what does that produce? It, it's slavery among God's people. Emotional slavery, financial slavery, mental slavery, relational slavery, because we don't understand these concepts. 
We don't get it. It's a, it's a lot bigger than that. I just gave you something that maybe you could identify with. It's, it's stuff like that. I'll, I'll, do a, I'll do a class maybe in the fall if, if, if possible. But, you know, but there's a lot to it. But hey, guess you know what? Happy day. You know what I wrote? I wrote a three-page prayer for you today that we're going to pray together. Are you happy about that? <laughs> you say, where are you getting all this out of the text? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So how is this happening? How, how is this thief? So he tells these religious leaders that he's talking about him being the good shepherd, and he's contrasting two lifestyles. The lifestyle that's lived under the influence of the thief and the lifestyle that's lived under the influence of the king. And Jesus says, this lifestyle produces theft, murder, and destruction. My lifestyle produces life, eco, Everything around you begins to teem and grow with life. Life begins to produce in your world. Life is produced. Your, you, things just get better, right? Like an ecosystem, things begin to get better. Things fall apart, but you follow Jesus, and the ecosystem revives itself. Following these guys, he says, you guys are the thieves. I'm the good shepherd, but he's mirroring them back to the ultimate thief because in John 8, he said, you're sons of your father, the devil. They said, we're of God. He said, you're not of God. They said, we're of Abraham. He said, you're not of Abraham. If you were of Abraham, you would know, understand who I am. And you're not sons of the Father, and you're not sons of God. You're sons of the devil, which again, ladies and gentlemen, internet audience, there's two worlds. They're in the kingdom with Jesus or outside of the kingdom and under the devil. The whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Satan is the god of this world, the world system. He's the prince in the power of the what? Air. He creates the environment and the influences of this culture. The seduction, the perversion, the greed, all of it. All of it. He's creating, he creates that atmosphere. We are in a kingdom. We are not in a culture. We practice a kingdom culture, and we take the kingdom culture into the culture. We respond in the opposite spirit. That's what we do. And so these people had been generational slaves. God wanted them to move out of that. He wanted them to embrace this power that was in front of them. This, and he's telling them, you, you are thieves. You have led them the wrong way. They're under bondage because of poor teaching. Yeah. So here's what they had. They had, generational, they had generational, uh, generations of natural, say with me, natural mindedness led to the enslavements of their enemies. The, the enemy had enslaved them. Poor and apathetic teaching and leadership. They had a leadership that didn't teach the people truths. Jesus rebuked them in Ezekiel 34, and he says, you lead them to pools of muddied water. You're poor shepherds. This is how little you care for these sheep, is you lead them to muddied water. It's not what he expects. The leadership didn't care. They didn't care about the sheep. He corrects them. I think it's John 7 or John 8, and he tells them, you don't care about the honor of the Lord. You don't care about the people. You care only about yourself. He rebukes the teachers for that. You're too interested in platforming yourself and, you know, getting accolades and getting into all the, te the right teaching circles. That's all you're interested in. You're not interested in my heart and my honor. You're not interested in caring for my people. And that's what he corrected them on. You're poor shepherds. You're indifferent to them. You're apathetic to them. You fleece them. You only cared about what they can give you, not benefiting them. Every week, I struggle over the message. It's like, what do you want me to say to your people? That's my question every single week. 
There's not a week that goes by that I don't ask that question. Every week, I'm like, I got nothing to say, Lord. What do you want to say to your people? These are your people. These are your people. What do you want to say? Because my job is not to lead you to muddy water. My job is to lead you to the fountain of living water, who is Jesus. Here he is, you know. That's the idea. And because of this, the people expected little, and they doubted everything. They had no expectation whatsoever. That is a horrible place to be. God is the God of expectation. He's the God that leads us from glory to glory. And we settle for nothing when he has died to give us much. Hmm? They believed, they doubted everything. Without faith, what? Come on. It's impossible to please God. They had no expectation. They had no faith. They believed nothing. They're doubting the Messiah standing right in front of them. He just healed a blind guy. And they're saying he's got a devil. They doubt everything. They doubted everything because they were so oppressed, so naturally minded, had been enslaved for so long. Say it with me. Crazy became normal. It's one of the ways you want to go free. You got to deal with your crazy. You got to deal with your pain and you got to deal with your crazy. If you will not deal with your pain and you will not deal with your crazy, you're not moving forward. And the hardest thing that people have a hard time dealing with and getting rid of or at least confronting is they're crazy because crazy's been with them a whole lot their whole life. You know what I mean? They don't want to get rid of fear because fear's been a comfort to them. Fear's been their excuse. They don't want to get rid of that. They don't want to get rid of the bitterness, the unforgiveness. They do consciously, but the soul doesn't want to get rid of it. The soul clings to it. Because in the soul, the soul tells you, you don't know who you'll be without it. And so we cling to it. And our pain and our crazy is our excuse. It's our default. It's our excuse for not trying. It's our excuse for not going further. It just becomes our excuse. And people are married to crazy. You got to give up crazy. You got to end your love affair with crazy. (laughs) It's true. Crazy is normal. You got to tell people when we do the classes, I tell them, I said, you can keep crazy. You can keep crazy. You've had crazy for 40 years. Crazy, you can keep crazy. It's all right. You've lived this long with crazy. You can keep crazy. Or you can give up crazy. It's up to you. <laughs> my, I'm conscious of my hair. My daughter is like, Dad, you need to do something with your hair. Your hair is like sticking up on anything. So I feel like my hair is sticking up. Like, I'm, like, I'm like, thanks, Mariah. Way to get in my head. Ready to get in my head. So, so every time I feel my hair move, I'm like, what's going on with my hair? Anyway. <laughs> They had, their hope had been deferred. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when desire comes, it's a tree of life. Say it with me. Jesus is faithful. People may fail. Circumstances may fail. I may fail. But the Lord will be faithful. Yeah, he will be faithful. The one who's promised is faithful. Hebrews says, let us hold fast. Come on. Yes. If God has made you a promise, he will be faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. For the one whose promise is faithful, Hebrews 10. And let us consider one another and stir one another up. The idea when God makes you a promise, I just want to make this point. I'm I'm, I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. Say it with me. He's going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. So the Bible says this. Their their hope had been crushed. They had no expectation left in them at all. When their expectation and their expectation of their forefathers was standing right in front of them. But they had allowed a mindset and they had allowed hopelessness to saturate them to the point that they could believe for nothing. And therefore, they were actually exiled from the very thing that God wanted to give them. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering. 
When God makes you a promise, say it with me. I, you say, this doesn't, that's not what the verse says. Ready? Just trust me. Right? Well, trust, trust, well, I don't know. Trust you? No, trust the Holy Spirit. Right? When God gives me a promise, he does not expect me to not waver. But he does expect me to not waver at the promise. There's a big difference. God makes you a promise, right? You're going to waver. I got news for you. You're going to waver. You're going to give, you're going to go, God's given me a promise. You know, and you're going to do a selfie. You're going to do a TikTok video. Yo, this is what the Lord told me. This is where I'm going. Everybody's going to be like, yeah. And then you're going to start down that road and life's going to happen and you're going to start to waver. Is this really what you told me, Lord? Did you really tell me to do this, Jesus? I don't feel like this marriage is of you. Did you really tell me to marry her? Yeah. You start to waver, but you go back to the Lord and say, is this what you said? I do it all the time. Believe me, I, I'm in this world all the time. I used to doubt myself when I would question the Lord. And I had, unfortunately, I had a very wise mentor who told me, man, Kevin, you can go back to him 100 times and he'll tell you. He will reassure you of his promise. I got stuff right now that I've been working on. And I start, and I'm working on it, and I'm starting to waver. Whoa, this is what you said? And then I go back, and he's like, this is what I said. What do you want me to do, Lord? I want you to do what I told you to do. And my confidence doesn't come from myself. My confidence comes from what he told me and the reassurances that he's giving me. Therefore, I stay the course. This is what happens. It's why we jump ship. We jump ship. We, we start reacting to the things around us. We, we get bored. Say it with me. The mundane always leads to the significant. God tells you to do something, and you're like, that's boring. I don't want to do that. And so you'll start doing it, but then you get bored, and you pull out of it, and you, you, you want to do something else. And you short track yourself, or you, you actually um, diminish yourself from what God really wants you to do. I do mundane things all the time. I'm doing mundane things right now. But the mundane things that I'm doing are going to lead to something greater because he's told me where I've told him, he's told me where we're going. He's told me what to do. He said, this is where we're going, Kevin. But in order to go there, you have to go here. And then you have to go here. And then you have to go here. And then we're going there. You see, it's never a straight run. And what happens is, is that it's, say it with me, it's okay to waver. You can waver, but go back to the promise. Go back to the Lord and say, is this what you said? Am I on track? Am I doing this right? Is there any changes? What are you saying? This is, again, the communal relationship with the Holy Spirit, led by his voice. We understand that? This is the thing I was talking about in the beginning. This is what God expected of them, is that they would learn him. He brought them to the mountain for his power and his presence. Learn me. Know me. We have the Spirit of God who came today in Pentecost in power. In power. He came with presence in power. We're supposed to learn and know him and understand him and learn to hear his voices and not the impulses of our emotions or the impulses of the voices around us. We're supposed to hear God in spite of everything around us. This is what he wants, and we stay the course. The second thing he says is he says this, right? Consider one another in order to stir up one another to good works. We're supposed to be a family in a community that stirs each other up. 
That we're walking around and you're like, hey, this is what God told me to do. And then we stir one another up. There's two different, there's two different words for this. So we have this word here, stir one another up. That's saying it's a different word that's found in Timothy. Where the, the word that's found here means push. Push. God's called you to be whatever it is. I don't know. Allie's wonderland of fashion designs, whatever that may be. God's called you to create this stuff. And Allie shares that vision with you. Your job is to push her. Push her, Joe. Push her. Push Joe, too. What, what are you doing with that, Allie? Are you, what are you doing with what God told you? This is what it means. This word here, stir, means to push. You push them. Come on. If God told you to do it, he's got it. Step, move, reach. Come on. Push, push, push. Because you know why? We're fearful, right? We're lions and lambs, but really we're chickens. We are. I'm a lion. I'm a chicken. You know what I mean? I'm going to follow Jesus. And Jesus is like, come on. And you're like, bark, 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 bark. <laughs> so we need each other. The family of faith is supposed to be mutually inspiring. You get it? There should be, say with me, there should be no jealousy among the believer. What God does for one, he'll do for another. The level of success that he gives this person according to their unique design is the same level of success he will give you according to your unique design. You got me? So what are you afraid of? Actually, when somebody gets successful, we should get stoked. That's awesome. That's amazing. What God did for you, he's going to do for me. What has God told you? And it's a mutual encouragement. This is the family and the household of faith. It's not tearing each other down. It's building one another up. That's the language of the scripture over and over again. Build one another up in the faith. Provoke one another to good works. The second one is fan into flame. This is what he told Timothy. Stir up the gift. Means, means what he's saying is fan it into flame. Timothy's got, Paul's telling Timothy, look, you've been given a gift, but you haven't, let, you haven't put a fire under anything, bro. Your coals are just laying there smoldering. He said, stir it up. Breathe on the coal. Fan it into flame. This is what we're supposed to do is fan one another. We're supposed to be a people of encouragement and a people of influence. You got me? Whatever God is telling you and calling you to do, the encouragement comes from the spirit and direction, but it's to be mutual. It's to be mutual. I used to encourage myself, man. We planted this church. I've told this story many times. And there'd be four people. And I'd be like... The offering's 35 bucks, can't even pay the rent on the dance studio we're in, and I want to go buy bullets. <laughs> and the Lord said, if you got one person and one dollar, you will not quit. My calling is not success as you see it, it's faithfulness as I see it. You got me? It's not calling, it's not, it's not success as you see it, it's, it's faithfulness as he sees it. And I would encourage myself. I'd have, I'd, my wife knows. We used to make a joke about it all the time. And we still look at each other and go, the revolution is on. I would call and leave a voice message. Kevin, man, I just want to tell you, the revolution is on. I was younger then, so just give me a break. You know, like, you're, dude, you're doing that? Yeah, when I was younger, I was like, the revolution is on, man. Breakthrough's coming. Rain's coming. Season's changing. That would be my voicemail. You know why? Who encourages the encourager? David encouraged himself in the Lord. Sometimes you got to encourage yourself. We need to encourage one another. But at the end of the day, you need to tell yourself the revolution is on. Change is happening. The seed in the ground is growing whether I see it or not. There is harvest in that little sprout of green little thing that's coming out of the ground. 
That thing is going to grow and is going to produce an abundance. You have to encourage you. It is so easy to be discouraged. It is so easy to be discouraged. We get filled with faith and calling, and then it's just life hits us, and it's just a different world. We have to stay that way. Thieves and robbers. Thieves and robbers. So I'm going to skip this part, but I'm going to come here. We look oftentimes for saviors within our world. There's only one savior, and his name's Jesus. Humans decide that they don't need Jesus, and so we try to set up our own utopias. That's what leads rise to like Stalin's, who was the savior of Russia, if you know the story. He was going to save Russia. He was a thief, a murderer, and a destroyer. Let's get one really close. Some of you know this one. Castro was the savior of Cuba, wasn't he? They were hailing him like he was the Messiah. He was going to save the island and, tra- and reform it from all of its wicked ways and bring it into a new era of utopia. And he's a murderer, he's a thief, and he's a destroyer. And the island to that day bears testimony of that. Who was this guy? Schweitzer said this. It's not the Christian doctrine of the kingdom of heaven that is the myth, but it's the humanistic, atheistic humanistic idea of utopia. That's the myth. Can't happen. We live heaven to earth, Christian. So our heaven comes from his world into our world and unto this world. That's the way it works. Our utopia doesn't come this way. It comes this way. Ideas, concepts, and visions. Right? Another story, another day. But the thief doesn't come to steal, kill, and destroy. So this, he's contrasting this lifestyle between the lifestyle under a thief and the lifestyle under him. And with me, you're going to get life. Over here, you're going to get this. So the word thief is the word klepto. It's the Greek word klepto. We should be familiar with that. Anybody ever heard the word klepto before? Kleptomaniac? He's got to steal something, man. I just got to steal something. Kleptomaniac. So it's the word klepto. So what happens when we live under choices? You can be a Christian. You can be a Christian loving Jesus, going to heaven, and you're making lifestyle decisions, covenants, partnerships, under the thief, and you're giving access to the thief into your life, and he's a klepto. The devil does not come to steal from you with violence. He opposes you with violence. He opposes the kingdom. So when you step into the kingdom, he comes at you with violent opposition. That's why every time you try to step up to purpose, you know, you try to, this is what God's telling me to do. This is what I feel like God's purpose is in my life. And you step into purpose, he opposes you with violence. But when he has a right of access into your life, he's not doing it with violence. He's a klepto. And you know what it means? To take a little at a time until it's all gone. Keep stealing and stealing. And this is what you see. The enemy just keeps robbing and robbing and robbing and robbing until it's all gone. The word kill is the Greek word thuo, and it doesn't mean murder by violence. It means to be cut into pieces. So here's what happens. You're making decisions over here, and everything in your life just gets cut to pieces. People make relationship decisions. Christians make poor relationship decisions, and they just get cut to pieces. Sound familiar? Right? They just get hacked up. So the devil isn't opposing you with violence, and he's not even murdering you. He's too seditious for that. He just steals from you because he's trying to make a spectacle out of you. 
Uh, the prosperity of God's all over, isn't it? Just stealing, stealing, stealing. Cutting your life to pieces. Cutting off your family. Cutting off the relationships. Everything in your life is cut off. Every time you reach, your arm gets cut off. Huh? Every time you step forward, you lose something else gets cut off. Something gets, just, you're just cut up. This is what Jesus is talking about. So when you look at your life and you're saying, where am I consistently stolen from? There's a covenant. There's an agreement. There's an access point that has enabled the enemy to klepto you. Why does my life keep getting hacked up into pieces? Where? If you see that with your life, you need to ask the Spirit of God, what is the right of the enemy to come? What right have I given away? What is the open door? What is the access point that allows my life to be severed into these pieces like it is? Because he's not doing it without a right. He does nothing but by right. He can't just do it to you. He can't. He has to have a legal right. Yeah. Then the third one is destroy. Apollo May. It's where we get the word apocalypse from. Anybody ever had that? Your life, it looks like an apocalypse. <laughs> Mushroom cloud. <laughs> Scorched earth. You been there? Anybody been there? Is it only me? I've been there. Destroyed. Laid waste. This is what the enemy does. He's trying to klepto. He's trying to cut pieces and cut you death by a thousand cuts. Right? Cut up. And he's trying to bring Apollo May. What, what enables him to do it is legal rights. It's another story. Legal rights. But we need, we say, oh, God just doesn't want me to have it. God doesn't want me to have it. Well, who told you that? If the Lord tells you and you ask him and you get a word and you know in your heart that your father said you can have it and you can't have it, it's not because your father said you couldn't have it. He expects us to be smart enough to understand that he's not a liar. He expects us to be smart enough that he's not schizophrenic and he didn't change his mind. He expects us to be smart enough to ask the question, well, if you told me to have it, then why don't I have it? And if you're not developed enough, the devil will help you with the answers. He'll tell you because you're not worthy. That's what he'll tell you. And you know, wait a second, I'm a son or daughter. I know I'm worthy. I'm worthy on my worst day because he loves me. I didn't, I didn't appoint me. He appointed me. I know I'm worthy. So this has nothing to do with value and worth, and the Lord told me I can have it. Because he expects us to know these things. If you see how Jesus confronted these teachers, he expected them to know. He expected them to know. Have you not read? You don't know this? You don't know this? You don't know this? You don't know this? Over and over he said it to them. He told the Sadducees, you're ignorant of the word of God and the power of God. Your problem isn't that you don't even know it. Your problem is you don't even believe the power. You're ignorant not only of the application, you're ignorant of the power that produces it, that can produce the change which tells you that Jesus expects us to know some things and he expects us to understand power. Just a thought. Again, when I learned this, the game changed. Everything changed for me. When we live by choices that are outside of the kingdom, this is the result. Klapto, Thuo, and Apollo May. That's the result. So when you look at your life, and you say, are any of these things going on in my life? Am I consistently stolen from? Why can't my business succeed? Why? Why? Why is my relationship, every time we try to build something, it just gets caught up? Why? What's going on here? The key is to live through his kingdom. This is the key, right? So this is what happens. I want you to see the result of what the thief does. And you want you to stop blaming God or coming up with excuses as to why it doesn't come. Yeah. It's not because God doesn't want you to have it. Has anybody here got a promise from God? Anybody? 
You hear the Lord tell you something. You know God told me this. You know it. You may not understand it. You may not know how to work it out, but you know the Lord has told me this. And if you don't have that, you need to seek it. You need to not be like these people who expected nothing and doubted everything. He expects you to believe him. And for great and mighty things that you know not of, he expects you. What he'll do is if you offer this to him and you're you know, too grandiose in what you're expecting him, he may give you a modified version of what you asked for and say, okay, well, let's start here. I want to be a billionaire, right? Well, why don't we start with financial independence, Kevin? Let's go. You know, you know what I'm saying? You know, because this is what we are. I want to win the lottery next week. Well, let's start with being faithful on your job. Let's start with that one. Okay, can we start there? So when you do you, this again, it's the dialogue. When you do that and then you follow that, that's what produces the change. That's what produces the change. If you're stepping into something and you feel like you're following God and you, you, it, 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 it's just not there, it's just not there, what right? The, the devil can't touch you. But he does. Oh, we all say, the devil can't touch me. The devil can't touch me. But he's touching Christians all the time. The devil can't come in my house. He's in your house all the time. This business belongs to God. He can't touch my business. But he blows your business up all the time. Why is that? Is we have a contradiction or do we have ignorance? That's the question. Is God's word a contradiction or do, are we ignorant? I would say we're ignorant. In fact, I know we're ignorant. I know we're ignorant. We don't understand it. We don't understand it. We have to stop playing the games, and we have to start asking, what right do you have to touch me? What right do you have to touch me? I'm a son of the highest. I'm an heir to the law of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit and life in Christ Jesus sets me free from all sin and death. That includes you and all of your kind. What right? And I also have a right of discovery. You can't just do things to me without me knowing about it. So I demand to understand and to know from the Holy Spirit what is the right, what right is being used against me. Most Christians can't handle it because we live in denial. We're either in the place of renewal and restoration or we're living in denial. And when the Holy Spirit tells you what the problem is, you deflect it. Oh, no, God, no. Oh, no, can't be that. Can't be that. Oh, no, God, no, can't be that. No, it's my father. It's my grandfather. Yeah, you may have generational issues, but this is laying at your doorstep. This isn't a generational issue. This is your house, Jenny. This is a your house issue. So the enemy is touching you, which means he has proximity and a binding right to you. Why is that? If you want to get spiritually aware, this is what it really looks like. This is kingdom stuff I'm talking about here. I know somebody's pulling on this because I can't get off this subject. So somebody, you know, I keep trying to pivot off the subject, but it keeps coming out. <laughs> this is what makes us go free. This is what enables us to go further. You're sons and daughters of the highest. That's not the promise of your father. That's not his promise. It's not, Beloved, I, I, I desire that you be in health and, and prosper even as your soul prospers. We're supposed to be in health and we're supposed to prosper, success, even as our soul prospers. Another story for another day. I don't want to break that down, but I'll leave it there. Say it with me. When it comes to the shepherd... I have good news. <laughs> I'm not alone. This is good news. You're not alone. You have a shepherd. Come on. You have a shepherd who will find you and will come to you when you call. You have a shepherd who will lead you 
and care for you and take and not lead you to muddy water, lead you to green pastures and still water and moving water and living water. Good news. You're not alone. He gives you his family. This is the first thing the shepherd does. When they bring a lamb in, they bring it into the community. And the lambs all bond with the other lamb. You get the picture? So that the lamb isn't alone. This is what the church is supposed to be. A community where we help each other, encourage each other, exhort one another. All of that, you know, do life as some would say. But it's a little bit more than doing life. It's more raw than that. It's way more raw than that. I mean, can you imagine if we were really raw and dealing with our issues in a raw form and just get rid of all the pseudo stuff that we pretend? When we pretend and we, we, we glaze things, it just, it just it enables it and empowers it to remain. What if we were just like, hey, man, I'm having a hard time. Boom, let's pray for you, you know? Let's support you. I need encouragement. Boom. The revolution is on. <laughs> You're alone because you want to be. At Elevate, we have multiple uh, groups. You, we have schools. We have services. Say, nobody invited me to anything. And I, you know when I always ask them? Who did you invite? Nobody invited me. The Bible says, if one desires friends, show themselves friendly. In other words, if you want friends, then be a friend. If you want somebody to invite you somewhere, invite them. They said, no, ask 10 people. I guarantee you, you're going to get one. You're going to get one. Not all 10 are going to say no. Hey, what are you guys doing? You want to go to coffee? You want to go pee? I mean, you just this is how it is. Where's your group? Can I connect to your group? Every single life group here at this church would welcome you with open arms. And anyone. You're alone because you want to be. We have affinity groups. We have ministry groups. We have all kinds of groups. We're community. Your group just ended, right? Was that your group? I just saw it blasted all over Facebook. Yeah, Gloria's group. No offense, Kenya. It's always it's just a party over here. Kenya's group won, but your group was like, you know, anyway, another story. <laughs> You're alone because you want to be. For, say it with me, right? Say, for things to change, I must change. If I do not change, nothing is going to change. You have to change. You, say it with me. I have to enter. I have to end my love affair with crazy. Let me say that again. I have to. You like that? I have to end <laughs> my love affair with crazy. Crazy's not normal. It can be normal, but if you want to keep crazy, keep crazy. But, man, if you want to change and you want the life that's different, get rid of crazy. You got to deal with pain and you got to deal with crazy. That's what we're looking at. Where's the pain and where's the crazy? Another story, another day. Say this. I need to end my love affair with the fear of people. And the fear of change. This is our blanket. This is our blanket. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. And it becomes your excuse, which becomes your enslavement. And we love it because it's warm. It's comfortable. We've had it our whole life. We were rejected as children. So we expect everybody to reject us. So we end up rejecting them before they reject us. And then when we do feel any, any sense of rejection, and believe me, every relationship has rejection, you know, yeah, the devil will use that against you. I won't say hi to you one morning and be like, see, that pastor doesn't care about you. I, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I was thinking about something else, you know. Sorry, my bad, you know. But he'll use that against you. You've got to end your love affair with that. You've got to give up that excuse and say, I don't like that anymore. Yeah? Just say this. I embrace 
a future of hope. And I refuse to be bound to the lingering after effects of a life I no longer own. I sever myself from all familiarity with the covenants of fear, the covenants of loneliness, abandonment, and any and all forms of crazy. I don't know who I will be without these things, but I choose a future of hope in the unknown, and I give myself permission to go free from the lingering after effects of a painful and familiar past that I no longer own. This is my statement of record before the court of heaven, and I renounce all statements to the contrary. If you want what you've never had, you've got to do what you've never done. So how do we do this? Right here, here's the last question. And then we're going to take communion. Shelly's going to come up and pray, and then we're going to do a renouncing prayer at the end. The question would be this. So the way is, is how, do we, how do we do this? How do we move away from this, 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 this stuff we're talking about? How do we do that? We have to follow the shepherd. That's the simple answer. You've got to enter through the door and follow the shepherd. Well, how do we do that? Ready? Here's my question, because this is a question for myself. How is this possible to stay close to the shepherd and follow the shepherd in a world that's full of distractions and demands? It's all great on Sunday afternoon, but Monday morning, whack, you know? Everything happens. The demands happen. The distractions happen. Everything starts happening, and we find ourselves swept away. How is this possible to follow the shepherd in a world that's filled with these things? Well, I'm glad you asked. Psalm 91.9, it says, When you have made the Lord your refuge and the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor will plagues come near your dwelling, and the angels will be given command over you to keep you in all of your ways. So what is this saying here? It's saying two things. When, better word would be if, if. You make the Lord your refuge. What does this refuge mean? It means he's the place you run to. He's the pl- you don't run to Dr. Phil. You, know? you don't run to Oprah. You run to Jesus. You, you don't listen to the counsel of the many. You listen to the counsel of the holy. So what's, I used to do this all the time, and people would always put pressure on me. You know, I, I've been like this type of person for a long time, and I'd have these things. You've got to make a decision now. You've got to make a decision now. I don't make any decisions now. I don't make one the house is burning down. You need to make a decision. I'm like, is everybody out? Okay, then I don't need to make a decision because I've not heard from the Lord. It doesn't matter the crisis. I have to have the mind of the Lord. He's my refuge. Hmm? Your marriage is falling apart. You don't pick up the phone and call all your divorced friends and find out what you should do. That's what we do. Yeah, we call up all of our friends who have been divorced. You need to get rid of that woman. She's no good. Take it from me. Yeah, but aren't you sleeping on a couch now, Jose? Aren't that where you're sleeping? You know, eating out of pizza boxes again? Isn't that what's going on with you? Yeah, but it's better. Is it? Is it really? I have problems. I've been with my wife a long time. The Lord's my refuge. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm dealing with a person that's more complex, different than I am, challenging to me in every, every possible way. And I go to the Lord, and I say, what do you want me to do? You're my refuge. My, I used to say my knees and my pants would be worn out. But I'd be like, help me. Help me with this woman, Jesus. This woman you have given me. 
And he'd tell me. And he would tell me things I didn't want to hear. I didn't want to hear it. Say you're sorry. What? Say I'm sorry? I didn't do anything wrong. Is there any men in the room? Is there a man in the room that can identify with what I just said? Thank you very much. Ladies, you need to applaud that man right now. We have to say our sorry when we didn't do anything wrong. What kind of deal is that? And I'd have to do it straight from Jesus. He'd say, say you're sorry. I'm like, for what? Listen to how she feels and apologize in concert to how she feels and how she perceives. Not how you see it, how she sees it. Listen, yeah. <laughs> and he would tell me. He would tell me. This is what I want for you. He is my refuge. This, I can't make this work. I deal with children. I've dealt with children every phase of my life. I wish I would have known this earlier, and I wish I would have done it younger. Then I wish I would have done it when I was younger. But I've learned it now. It's taken me a lifetime to learn these lessons. Lifetime, right? And so what the benefit of wisdom is, is that the benefit of wisdom isn't so much for the person who stands in wisdom. It's for the benefits of the person who hears the wisdom. So the wisdom that I come, you can look at my life and say, you made a lot of dumb choices. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't make those choices anymore. So let me help you. Let me help you. That's the point. I would ask the Lord when it relate to my children. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Very hard thing to do. Your children grow in phases. They there's a lot of changes that happen if you raise children. That you have, and you have to adapt to that child. And I have to adapt to our children. And I would ask the Lord, what do I do here? You know, what do I do? I, I'm, I'm at my wit's end. And he would say, I want you to speak to them in accordance to their identity. And I want you to look at them and talk to them as the person that I see them as, not as you see them as, not in from your parentage. I'm like, okay, so how do you see them? And like, I'll hear adult, you know, I'm like adult. No, he's not making adult choices. He's an adult, Kevin. Treat him as an adult. He's my son. He claims me. Speak to him as if he is my son. Don't speak to him like he's your son. See, this is a job of parents, ladies and gentlemen. The job of parents is a stewardship. Say it with me. Parenting is a stewardship. Our responsibility is to steward the child to the ultimate father's parenting. If we have failed there, that's our failure. Your failure isn't to parent them for the next, you know, 40 years of their life. Your, your job is to parent them unto stewardship to the Lord. The choices that they make from there, those become their choices. Yeah, that's our job is to lead them unto the father, the true father who becomes their parent. And that's how I represent myself to my son. Yeah, I made a lot of mistakes with my kids, a lot of mistakes. You know, they, my kids say, oh, you didn't make mistakes, dad. You were a good dad. Yeah, that's all their, you know, but I look at it and I think, man, I could have did so much better. I could have did so much better. Anybody with me? Anybody with adult children in Ryugi with me? You with me, right? We're all like, <laughs> you're making me cry, man. You know, because we look back and we're like, man, I could have did so much better. I could have done so much better. But what you do now is you represent yourself to them. Represent. Not the person you've been, but a new person. You're not that person anymore, and you treat them differently, and the relationship begins to pivot, and things begin to turn. Now, how do I know that? Because I go to the Lord as my refuge. I get the counsel from him. We're, we're, you know, and he may point me in a lot of different directions, but when you make the Lord your refuge, 
And then he says, when you make the Lord your habitation, the most high your habitation. In other words, he's the place that you live from. He's the place that you live from. So when I have a problem, I'm running to him. And I've learned, because it's, again, it's that communal relationship, ladies and gentlemen, that is the apex of this kingdom. If you get anything out of me, it's the communal relationship with the Holy Spirit. Charmaine, singer, one thing's best thing I ever said, she ever said. I said, somebody asked her, it's like, how am I Melville? She's like, oh, I've been here six years. And it's like, what have you learned from Melville? And she's like, always ask the Holy Spirit. And I was like, five stars to Charmaine Crosby. I have succeeded. You know, if that's one thing you learn, that is the apex of this kingdom. That is, that is the number one thing that's related to this kingdom is that communal relationship with the Lord. Learning to hear, not just experience him. Ooh, I feel so loved. I feel so loved. Yeah, that's the easy side. The harder side is following him. Learning to hear his voice and follow his voice. That is the art. That is the development. That's what makes us mature. That's what changes us. You got me? When you make the Lord your habitation, last point, I'm on it. I got two minutes left. We're going to do it. Boom, bam, boom, out, right? Habitation means it's the place you come from. It's the place you live from. We live from that. We find that place. You always got to find that center. You got to wake up and get that center. Got to get the center in the Holy Spirit. I don't care if you're shaving, guys. And like, Holy Spirit, I need you today. Guide me. I give you permission to lead me. I give you permission to interrupt me. It can be a simple two-minute prayer. But find the center and live from that habitation. Stop doing it in your own strength. You're smart, but you're not smart enough. You're talented, but you're not talented enough. Got news for you, right? You need Jesus. And so when you make him the habitation and you make him the refuge, God's going to counsel you, and he's going to counsel you through all kinds of crazy situations. He's going to put favor on you in all kinds of crazy situations. He's the one you run to. He's the one you live from. Amen? All right, we're going to take communion, and Shelly's going to come up and lead us in a prayer. Do we have music? So we're going to play music. And so what Shelly's going to do, I want you all to just come up and grab the communion and come back. And then then Shelly's going to lead us in a prayer, and we're going to take the communion together. And then we're going to do a renouncing prayer. Anybody want to do a renouncing prayer? Yes, we're going to do a prayer of renouncing after that. Okay, come on, Shelly. Yeah, just go ahead and play the music, and you guys go up and grab the elements and bring them back to your seat. We'll take them together. Do you need one? We're waiting. You can come up, Michael. Or that. Okay. So as you're uh, going to your seat, um, I tend to pray. We do communion on three-day weekends. And so I pray kind of in conjunction with the three-day weekend. And this weekend, of course, is Memorial Day. So before I write my prayer, I usually do a little bit of research, even though we know basically what Memorial Day is about. But just some fun facts. A lot of places claim the beginning of Memorial Day. But one is in Charleston, South Carolina in 1865. African Americans, about 10,000, had a parade for the Union soldiers that died uh, in Confederate uh, custody in like a prison. They actually gave them a proper burial. Wow. They dedicated, uh, they uh, decorated their graves, and they picnicked. And I think that's really cool that 
people would honor the people that died to set them free. Come on. You know, and that's good. Man. Another, in the 2010 presidential address, uh, the reason we have Memorial Day in May is because the nation's in bloom. And that's just so Come sweet on. to know that, you know, when you look at the flowers today, when you go home, the reason we honor our soldiers now is because we want it beautiful when we honor our soldiers, you know, that gave. So I'm going to just pray, and I just pray that you could clear your hearts and minds as we go through this prayer. Uh, glory to God. Glory to you, God, and honor to you, our King. Praise to the one who was, the one who is, and the one who will be our ultimate victory. We glory in your love. We glory in your provision and your protection over us. You are Jehovah Nisi. You are our banner of victory. And we bow in the humblest of gratitude. This Memorial Day weekend, we celebrate and remember the lives of those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom and for our overall well-being. We remember and value each and every soldier that died in the line of duty because they mattered, because they were of great value, because they made the difference, because they were our brothers and sisters, and because we're grateful for the bravery, their commitment, and their sacrifice. We say from our hearts, we remember you. We remember what you did. We honor you in gratitude. On the night our Savior died, he asked us to remember him too. He asked us to honor him too with this bread and with this cup. We remember our King who humbled himself and lived among us, who loved us, who loved us to the point of paying the ultimate sacrifice. We remember, Lord. We are grateful, Lord. We will honor you with our lives, Lord. We will be faithful unto death, Lord, for you are worthy. Fill us now with your presence and the reality of your kingdom that is here and is coming. Help us to empty ourselves and be filled with you that we may be brave, that our hearts would be fully committed to you, that we could love you as you loved, live as you lived, and if need be, lay down our lives as you did. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, hold this up. See, this represents the body of Jesus that was given for me. It's no small thing. I believe it, and I receive it. Let's take it together. All right. All right. So we're going to do this prayer, and then we're going to take the... We're going to take the the juice, right? Ready? Say this. I am a son or daughter of the highest. Healing, deliverance, and freedom is my birthright. I invoke the law of the Spirit, which is mine by right of inheritance. I invoke the law of repentance, which is mine by right of inheritance. For who the Son sets free is free indeed. I renounce every willful an ignorant covenant that I have made with the thief or any of his kind. I repent of every activity, every mindset, every willful action that has bound me to him in any way. I repent for lowering myself to a lesser voice other than that 
of my Heavenly Father through the Holy Spirit descends today. I call back the wasted time, the wasted years that have been cut away from me through my ignorant and arrogant actions. I renounce the unfaithfulness and the dishonoring mindsets that I have carried in any way towards the Lord, towards his house, or towards his family. Say this, my hurt, my pain, my disappointment may be real, but I surrender my right to be offended. I repent for every judgment that I have made against the Lord or against his people. If I have judged him as not being good, I renounce these claims and I honor him as good in spite of what I believe, what I see, or what I perceive. These judgments have caused me separation and have enabled the thief to carry me away.